Another thing that I was going to mention before we started is there are three times in this psalm that the word blessed is used. Now, that may not seem like a whole lot, but that's more than appear in any other psalm. It's found in verse 4, in verse 5, and in verse 12. And in some sense, I think it forms uh, a way to look at this psalm in the sense that each of these sections have a beatitude. Each of them has a beatitude. And you can divide it into verses 1 through 4. You can divide it in verses 5 through 8 or maybe 5 through 9. And then verses 10 through 12. But that's one way to look at this psalm and to break it up. But let's look at these words and read these words. Be thinking as we go throughout the questions that I have up. How is God described in this psalm? How is he described and how is the temple described? But Psalm 84, for the choir director on the Geteth, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you, Selah. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose hearts are highways, the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. And notice the word outside is in italics. Some versions just have a day in your courts is better than a thousand. Just stop there. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord is a sun, a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. And no one... No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in him. Now, another point that I could have made that helps us divide the psalm. You notice that you have in verse 4 and verse 8 the term salah. And this is another reason to divide the psalm up into three parts of four verses each. That is largely how we will comment on it in just a moment. 
It is a little awkward, I admit, to have this Salah in verse 8. Because it seems like verse 9 is the prayer that he's asking him to hear in verse 8. So it's almost like the Salah breaks up the prayer, which is uh, not normal. Now, it says it is a psalm of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah. Have we seen any psalms? First of all, the last few psalms that we have studied are from who? Asaph. Yes, that's right. John said Asaph in 73 through 83. Asaph. Now, have we seen any psalms from the sons of Korah to this point? Some others, I don't know if we've seen them yet. Okay, okay. So y'all, y'all are acknowledging you're not prepared for the test. <laughs> okay. Psalms 42 through 49 are sons of Korah Psalms. Now, we must have been in Florida. Psalms <laughs> <laughs> so 42 through 49 are associated with the sons of Korah. 43 did not have a heading, and 42 and 43 are. Probably one psalm. I think that's the only night we've ever covered two psalms at one setting. We covered 42 and 43 at the same time. But the rest of them are associated with the sons of Korah. Look in, look in Psalm 85. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. In verse in verse in Psalm eighty seven, Psalm eighty seven, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a psalm. In Psalm eighty eight, a psalm, a psalm of the sons of Korah. So you have this heading in forty two through forty nine, in eighty four, eighty five, and eighty seven, eighty eight. I believe in all, with Psalm 50, there are 12 psalms attributed to Asaph and 11 that are somehow tied to the sons of Korah. Who were the sons of Korah? Who were the sons of Korah? What, what did they do? What was that? Okay, gatekeepers. They were Levites, descendants of Levi, gatekeepers at the house of God mentioned in 1 Chronicles 26. 1 Chronicles 26. But let's look at this psalm four verses apart, uh, four verses at a time largely, and uh, try to grasp its meaning. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. And one of the ways that the Lord is going to be referred to repeatedly is He is going to be referred to as Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts or Lord God of hosts. You see it in verse 1, in verse 3, in verse 8, verse 12. The Lord of hosts. This is a common name for God in this psalm. But how lovely are your dwelling places. This particular word for lovely is not used frequently. I think it's used about seven, eight times in the Old Testament. A couple of times it's used. 
are in Isaiah 5 and verse 1. Isaiah 5 and verse 1. Now, I don't remember, I don't know if you remember off the top of your head Isaiah 5. But we mentioned it a couple of weeks ago when we were dealing with Psalm 80. This is what Isaiah 5, this is how it begins. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. The beloved there is God. The people are describing their relationship with God. My beloved. This is the same word translated lovely. Because God is my beloved. His dwelling places, the place to worship His name is lovely. Same word. And because of how they view God, it leads them to view the house of God, the place where they worship, as being such a lovely place, such a beloved place. And he says in verse 2, My soul longed and yearned for the courts of the law, uh, courts of the Lord. Now, notice he mentions my soul. In verse 2, then later he will mention my heart and my flesh. My soul, my heart, my flesh. He is talking about everything that he is. Everything that he is. My soul longed and even yearned for the cords of the Lord. My flesh, my heart, and my flesh sing for joy. To the living God. My soul longs and yearns for the house of God. We stated Psalm 42 is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Look back at Psalm 42. and Notice how it begins. Psalm 42, for the choir director of Maskell of the sons of Korah, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before you? Now he is talking about public worship. How do I know that? Because that phrase, appear before God, is used often in the Old Testament in the context of public worship. I'm not going to give you the other verses right now because we're going to encounter this in Psalm 84 in just a moment. We're going to encounter that phrase there and I'll give you some more verses to establish that fact. But as he thinks about the assembly, he, the Bible says, My soul pants for you. I pant for you. I desire you. My being hungers and thirsts for you. His attendance at services was an expression of his hunger for God, his thirst for God, his longing for God, and his yearning for God. It is an expression of that. Sometimes it's almost like today, it's a given that, well, if you just attend services, you're just emphasizing the outward over the inward. 
Would you say that of the psalmist? His outward action was a reflection of his burning inward desire for God. A burning craving for God. He longed to appear in his presence. And he even is envious of the birds that had somehow found a nest in God's house. He says in verse 3, The bird also has found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself. When, where she may lay her young, even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. We talked about how the psalm describes God. God is the Lord of hosts. In verse 2, God is described as the living God. In verse 3, God is described as my King, my King and my God. These are ways that God is referred to here in Psalm 84. And He is envious of the bird that has made its home in such a blessed place. He, he, he uses the term, you notice He uses the term a house in verse 3. The bird also has found a house. That same word house is used in verse 4. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising your name. They are ever praising your name. Silah. Where is it that we so long to be that when we get there, it's hard to believe it's real? It seems like a dream. Is it for you an amusement park? A football stadium? A great rock concert? Or is it the house of God? Which one is so great, so awesome to us that we have to pinch ourselves to think, I'm really here? To the psalmist, it was God's house. Could we say these words and make them our own? And what we long for in such a way shows us a lot, shows other people a lot of who we are. Now, understand, too, that when we're talking about the temple, the temple symbolizes God's presence. But God can never be limited to the temple. 1 Kings 8, 27, 
will God indeed dwell on earth. The heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that you have built? 1 Kings 8, 27. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? God dwells in all the earth. The temple is not the only place associated with God's presence. For it fills the world, but it represents His presence in a special way. Now just looking at those verses, looking at verses 1 through 4, how is God's house described? What are some terms that are used to refer to the temple here in verses 1 through 4? What was that? Okay, verse 1, we have, as Isaiah says, your dwelling place. Was it David, were you saying something? Well, was the uh, word that modifies that is lovely. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, your, your dwelling place, and uh, it is a lovely dwelling place, and we've already talked about the emphasis on that particular word, that, that modification is important. Um, and what else? How else is it described? The courts of the Lord. Courts of the Lord in verse 2. The courts, the courts of the Lord. And we think of the division in the temple, in the tabernacle, that you have the holy place. You have the, 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 the temple, the courtyard, and then you have the holy place, in the most holy place. And my soul is yearning for the courts of the Lord. Again, that's an indication that he is talking about God's house and public worship in this particular case. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. And uh, in verse 3, notice he describes this place as your altars. Your altars. He, he talks about a specific place. The altars of God are the place where atonement for sin is made. Where the blood is poured out. And this is a place of reconciliation between God and man. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And it is described as God's house in verse 4. So, again, important to see how the temple is described. Important to see how God himself is described. Let me read verses 5 through 9 here. And this is the most difficult part to translate. Uh, some of your versions will have some different things here in verses 5 through 9. But how blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are highways... And to Zion is added in italics. Indicates not in the original. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. Okay. 
Uh, how is God described in those words? He's described, we've already written on the board, the Lord God of hosts, verse 8. Uh, he's referred to as the God of hosts four times in the psalm. But what are some other ways he's referred to? He's the God in Zion, verse 7. Okay. God in Zion, in verse 7. That is his city, as Psalm 48 particularly emphasized. He is, he is God of Zion. In verse 9, simply described there as, as God. A shield. Yeah. I, I think that will come uh, that will come later in verse 11. I, I, I'll explain later, but I think the term shield may refer to the king. Okay? You, you, but, but verse 11 will use it in reference to God. But, but uh, you, you may disagree with that argument. We'll look at it in just a second. Also, he is called in verse 8 the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob. And so, in this passage, the first beatitude, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. And by the way, I meant to parallel this to verse 4. Do you remember when the Queen of Sheba comes from the end of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon? And after she sees everything, she says, the half was not told me. I didn't believe all the reports and, and I wasn't told the half of it. And then she says in 1 Kings 10, verse 8, how blessed are those who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. How blessed are they? How much more blessed those who are dwelling in God's house, ever praising His name. In verse 5, how blessed is the man whose strength is in you whose hearts are highways to Zion. It seems like to me, this psalm is talking about people who love to be in Jerusalem, in Zion so much, and they long to go to the temple. They've got the path memorized. They know every step of the journey. And, and in their way, they are keeping this road hot as they are traveling there to worship. And verse, four, verse 6 may describe the journey. Now, we really don't know for sure because we don't know about the valley of Baca. We don't know uh, where that is exactly. Uh, there is a, a, a passage, Tate says, a passage in Josephus, uh, which he does not uh, give the footnote for, that... Um, he says that it's mentioned as a, a city in Galilee. But it's not mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. But this could be a place along the journey. And it says the early rain covers it with blessings. What do some of your versions have instead of blessings at the end of verse 6? Pools. Pools. Now... Um, Blessing, as I was remembering, this is the difference. And, and let me tell you as I'm doing this, I was going to mention that Mary Roche says she could not be here tonight because she 
uh, had a wreck the other day on the way to singing home, in the nursing home. Oh and, um, but um, they're trying to get a new car. I don't think that anything was bad, was it, Christy? Uh, physically wrong with them. It was just a thing. Now, this is the consonant, consonantal text. And um, at one of these points. And there, there's a difference in translation because one point has this. Can, can you recognize the difference between those two? <laughs> The difference is in these little vowel points here. Right. And so the dispute between translations is which of these vowel pointings best represents the original. The reason I'm telling you that, sometimes when you see the debate that goes on behind what word should be there in the text, I think it actually strengthens our faith and not tears it away. Because this was not part of the original text. The vowel pointings here at the bottom, that was not part of the original text. That was added between 500 and 1000 BC. Originally, they just had the consonants. And they were expected to know how to pronounce the consonants because you know what word went there. How shameful for a public reader to read that and not know what, what, what vowel pointings should have gone in. But they made vowel pointings to represent the vowel sounds they were already making. They were already using. And some manuscripts have this and some manuscripts have this and therefore a trace. Now, what that shows you is the great care that was used in preserving these things and how all these things are so heavily weighed by translations. There is no book that has been examined and re-examined and looked up, looked over and looked up and looked down like this book. And all of these things should bring us confidence in it, not tear away our faith. But the text says, it says, O uh, Lord of hosts, in verse 8, hear my prayer, give ear, O God of Jacob, Silah. Behold our shield. Now a couple of you mentioned that as a title for God. And I think that is going to be used as a title for God in verse 11. It may be here in verse 9. But the reason why I said we associate that with the king is because it seems like to me that verse 8 and 9 is a prayer for the king by the psalmist. He begs God in verse 8, hear my prayer and give ear. And then in verse 9, behold our shield, O King. And, it, and it's used in parallelism with the phrase, look upon the face of your anointed. A shield is a military, uh, of course, a, a defensive weapon in battle. And remember, the king was viewed as having a military purpose. We want a king, we, we want a king to go out and fight our battles, 1 Samuel 8. They wanted a king to fight their battles. King was viewed militarily. Do you remember after Jehu 
killed um, he killed Ahaziah, king of Judah. He killed Jehoram, king of Israel. And when he tells the men uh, of Samaria, you choose someone to fight, you put one of the 70 sons of Ahab on the throne and you fight for him and we'll come fight against you. They said two kings could not stand before him. How could we stand? Kings were viewed as the mightiest of men, the strongest of men. They were viewed as warriors. And if kings could not stand, how can we stand? And they surrender to him without, without a protest, without a fight. But the point is, this, this is a term that is used, I think, here for the king that God has chosen to, to be a leader. Now, what are some other places where I can find that shield is used like that? A couple of passages I have in my notes. Look at Psalm uh, 47. Psalm 47, verse 9. Okay, that is not as clear. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of God. For the shields of the earth belong to God. It seems like these shields are being wielded by men and not by God. That's Psalm 47, 9. Look at Psalm 89 and verse 18. 89 and verse 18. For our shield belongs to the Lord and our King to the Holy One of Israel. But you see in 89.18, the term our shield and our King are used interchangeably there in that passage. Now, I'm not minimizing that that term is much more frequently used of God as verse 9, or excuse me, as verse 11 will do in just a moment. Verse 11 will do that. Okay? Back in verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God. I stated that that kind of term is used that kind of term is used in a public worship, particularly attendance at the feast. It is used in the context of the attendance of the three feasts a year, Exodus 23, uh, 15, and, and 17, Exodus 34, verses 23 and 24, uh, Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, Isaiah 1 verse 12. There are other instances of this, but here are some phrases where appearing before God is used in the context of public worship. And uh, they go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. And he begs God, hear my prayer, give ear, and then praise for the king. Now verses 8 and 9 are a little unique. And it's the only petition in this particular psalm. Most of the psalm is just extolling the wonder and love that he has for the house of God. 
Verse, verse 10. A day in your courts is better than a thousand. I had rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And that is beautiful. A day in your court is better than a thousand. I want you to look at some of the contrast here. This is Psalm 84 10. One day is better than 1,000 days. A day before God's presence. Let's take the places we mentioned before. A day at God's presence is better than a thousand at some theme park. At a ball game. At a rock concert. One in his presence trumps a thousand outside that presence. And he makes a contrast between standing at the threshold. Now, this is the word that some people have threshold. Some people have the word doorkeeper there. It is not the same word for doorkeeper used elsewhere. This is a word used only here, as I remember. It's a word used only here. But the idea seems to be that he's not even granted full entrance into God's house. He's kind of just at the threshold. And that is as far as most people got. It was only the priest who could go inside the holy place. And only the high priest who could go inside the most holy place. For most Israelite worshipers, the closest you get is the courtyard. That's the best you could do. That was only the threshold. You're only the, at the door. You're only, and so in a certain sense, you don't even have full entrance. But it is better to be at the threshold of God's house than to dwell, to dwell in the tents of wickedness. To dwell with wickedness. Don't mean this to sound bragging. I was blessed in high school to go to school with a lot of young people who were Christians. There were 10 or 11 congregations in our area. A couple of them don't meet uh, now. They have dwindled. Some of them were established in the 1800s when people could not travel as far but within every one of those, there was some young people. Some of them had plenty. Some of them had one that we would get together and go to Bible studies. And one night, one night, a person that was worldly 
in our school who was a, a nice guy in a lot of ways, but no interest in God. Was invited by one of them just to come to the house. And she, he said at their house, he didn't come into the place where we were having this Bible study. And we have about 20 or 25 people. And he just marveled to this lady. He marveled to this girl um, that was in our group. This is what y'all do for fun on Saturday night. Y'all get a group and study the Bible. And I thought to myself, and I don't remember if we convert. I don't think he ever said that to me. I thought, yeah, that beats the wheel of fortune or whatever it was you were watching, buddy. And he was just sitting there, mind numb, in front of the TV, watching something that amounted to nothing. But it's something the world doesn't understand. And the world doesn't understand... How some of the things that are so precious to us have no appeal to them. And some of the things that are precious to them have no appeal to us. In verse 11, oh, there's another contrast. Another contrast. I want to make this contrast. Okay, in each case, I want you to notice how these first two have been. It is like in worship of God, this is the lesser role. You know, the, you have one day versus a thousand days. You have the threshold or gatekeeper in contrast to dwelling in wickedness. But then you have, look at this. I'd rather spend, stand at the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Which would you choose there? House or tent? Which of these is the lesser? I circle the lesser. The point is it's the ways of the world that will not endure. All that is in the world, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, the lust, of the, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. The world passes away, and it's the lust thereof. But he who does the will of the Lord abides forever. That is the permanent road. That is the road to blessing. That is the solid foundation, the house. And wickedness is living in a tent. For it is a temporary dwelling that can collapse at any time. I may have made too much point of that. But I, I think you see those contrasts in those passages. Or you can see those. Now, hey, what, is there a possible connection to the, uh, the sons of Korah here? And what you <laughs> mentioned about them being the gatekeepers? Yes. And I can't believe I didn't say that. But yes, uh, you're, good point, John. First Chronicles 26. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Hey, they, it is not the same word for gatekeeper that, like we said, is translated here in some versions, doorkeeper. But it's the same kind of idea. Same kind of idea. That, you know, to, to be a Levite, and your job is the gatekeeper. 
Your job is to be the Norm and Keegan of the gates, okay? You open the door for the people who come in to services. Now, that may seem to a casual observer like a lowly position. But they consider themselves blessed to have that position. Where would you rather be a doorkeeper than that? So yes, 1 Chronicles 26 does apply. And verse 11, the Lord God is a sun and shield. How is God described? Running out of room. But God is described as a sun and shield. It is true that sometimes the king can be called a shield, but more frequently God is the shield. God is the shield that can even make the king a shield. Uh, As David the king prayed to God in Psalm 3 verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the one who lifts my head. God is a son. He is not frequently called son in the Old Testament. And maybe some have suggested the reason for that is some of the other nations viewed the son as a god. Egypt did. And to say the Lord is Son may have sounded uh, to associate with paganism. They don't mention it often, but it is mentioned some. Isaiah 60 verses 19 and 20 use that idea. Uh, Malachi 4 verse 2. Malachi 4 2. Isaiah 60 and verse 19 and 20. And it says, no good thing. God will not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. Now the word uprightly is the word perfectly. It's like where God tells Abraham in Genesis 17, 1, walk before me and be perfect. It's the same word used of Job, that Job was blameless or perfect in Job 1, 1. And the Bible tells us for the one who walks in integrity, the Lord does not withhold any good thing, any good thing. It says, O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. You see the same kind of idea in Psalm 212. Um, blessed is the one who trusts in you. A beatitude pronounced upon the one who trusted in God. Let's see if I've left off too much and you can help me out here. Uh, God is the uh, Lord. Uh, God is the Lord of hosts. Uh, God is uh, God is the living God. And by the way, something unique about living God. And this is a stat from Jack Cottrell. I may be a little off, but I've got, I got the stat from him. He said that God's called the living God 15 times in the Old Testament, 15 times in the New. Both the same. And usually living God, it's in the context of some conflict that God's people are going through. God is called the living God twice by David when he is explaining why he's going to fight Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. 
verse 26 and verse 36. It is also used by Hezekiah in connection with the battle with Assyria in 2 Kings 19. Just a couple of times there. But the point is, we call on God to be the living God because He's constantly active and we constantly are dependent upon Him. He is my King and my God. He is God in Zion. He is God. He is sun and shield. He is God. And sometimes it uses the phrase just Lord. I have that phrase used besides the fact Lord of hosts. He is just called the Lord in verse uh, verse 2 and verse verse 2 and verse 11 I have down. Psalms 42 through 83 were the Psalms that emphasized the word Elohim. The word Yahweh rarely appeared, but now you have that word appearing quite frequently. But your dwelling place, the courts of the Lord, uh, then you have in verse 10, you have the expression, your courts, used there, uh, your altars in verse um, in verse. Uh, three, as we mentioned, uh, your house. Uh, Zion is referred to in verse 7. And that seems to have the idea of place where God's house uh, dwells. Um, but the courts and house are again used in verse 10. So, so we see quite a bit about how it describes the temple and how God is described. Do you have any more things right there that I missed about that? As I was looking through this psalm, um, we, we talked about appearing before God is public worship. Appearing before God is public worship. Okay. But here's some other things that I think how does he view worship at the temple? Now, we may not worship at the temple. We may not offer animal sacrifices. We may not have to go all the way to Zion to present our offerings and thank the Lord for that. But what does this tell us about worship in general? And this marker is about running out without any of it, right? Well, thank you. Okay. What does it tell us about worship at the temple? One thing, it is an expression of his yearning and longing for God. I hope and I believe what I'm about to say is true.
that you would not commit yourself to come out another night and study with us if you didn't have that longing and yearning for God. And I do appreciate that. Public worship is a reminder that our strength is from God. Verse 7, verse 5 and verse 7 use a couple of different words for strength. But public worship is a reminder that our strength is from Him. It's a reminder that our strength is from God. It is God's house shall be called a house of prayer. As He is here, He begs God to give ear to His prayer and to listen to His cry. I'm quoting from Isaiah 56, 7 and what Jesus quoted when He cleansed the temple. Your house shall be a house of prayer. When we come to God's house, it is a house of prayer. It is a place of prayer. And public worship is a call for us to put our trust in God. In verse 12. It is a call for us to put our trust in God. Now, we could say other things about public worship, but which of these is not true of our public worship? All of them should be. When we come together, it's a call for us to put our trust in God. It is a reminder that He is our strength. He is our shield. He is our Son. He is our King. He is our God. All of these things about God are called to put our trust in Him. A reminder that all our blessings are from Him. And it is a place to offer prayer. It's a place to offer prayer. Now, when Jesus said, and I quoted this the other day, I don't think I said this in the sermon, Matthew 21, verses 21 and 22, all things that you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive, in that passage, those words are plural. It's not just, that's not just an individual's prayer discussed in Matthew 21, 21, 22. That is a collective prayer of the people of God discussed in that passage. What you pray for in those circumstances. But the desire for God, the desire for God's house, the desire to worship God, it's an awesome thing. It is an awesome thing. And I am sometimes reminded when I am um, in meetings and remind me to announce something about that next week, Christy. But how blessed I am to get to be in God's house so often and to meet so many good people from so many different places. All through the places. Different kinds of situations. Um, it's a blessing. Now, 
Any, any comments there on that? David? Oh, I have a comment from earlier. Okay. It, uh, you know, verse 1, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. Well, it strikes me that wherever God is dwelling, He makes that lovely. Just by His presence. His presence is what makes yeah. Any place His presence is makes it lovely. Okay. How's it go? Anywhere is home. If Christ my Lord is there, is that the, is that the line? And and I think I think that's right, David. I think that's a good observation. Very good. Without you, dearest joys would fade. What was that, that Gary? The rest of the song. Anywhere without you, dearest joys would fade. Yes. Yes. Anywhere with Jesus. Yes. Yes. And and you think about. Some songs and uh, really people, some songs people just completely object to about, you know, how we'll have a mansion, robe, and a crown. And, and I understand that. I understand why you can, and, and some people just completely don't, don't sing those. But heaven wouldn't be heaven if it was just streets of gold and gates of pearl and no God there. Well, that would be something like San Francisco. <laughs> that, that would not be heaven. You know, heaven is something God is there and everything as a result of His presence is transformed. Heaven would be total darkness if God. Yes, that's right. That's right. That's very good. Very good. Okay. Now you know what's coming next. As we look at Psalm 84 and how Jesus fulfills Psalm 84. Psalm 84 and Jesus. What, what did you all come up with? I, I couldn't help but uh, think in verse 2 of Jesus when he's cleansing the temple. Okay. John 2.17. John 2.17. What's the he quotes another passage from Psalms. Remember what it is? Zeal for your house. Zeal for your house. Has consumed me. Okay? I would not have that one down. It's a, it's a good observation. But the longing for God's house compares with Psalm 69 and John 2.17. So, so very good. Very good. Um... Anything else like that? About the verse eleven, no good thing. Okay. Will How about wait, 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 wait. withhold? Okay. You want to hold down that? Yeah, hold on to that one. We'll <laughs> let you. We'll let you come back and articulate that. But that was my grand finale. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, but what, David? Well, I have a contrast. Okay. Yeah. 
The bird, verse 3, the bird has found a house, the swallow a nest, but the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. That's true. The contrast with Matthew 8 20. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Okay, let me give you a real easy one. Most common title used to refer to Jesus in the New Testament is? Is what? Son of man. Okay, okay. Son of God. That's what he uses of himself, son of man. Christ. Christ, okay. Christ. What's Christ mean? Anointed. Okay, there's one. So, So the anointed... The ultimate example of God's anointed that is blessed by God and held up by God is Christ. The term Christ appears, I didn't look them all up, but over 500 times in the New Testament. And if there's any of them much that refer to anyone other than Jesus, uh, be hard pressed to remember where they are. So that is that is one. Uh, that's a really easy one. Okay, let's go to something that I wouldn't have caught because looking through this in a Greek translation, how lovely are your dwelling places? Do you know the word that is translated lovely? Is translated there in the New Testament. Beloved, this is my beloved son. And those are just some references from the Gospel of Matthew. As God's dwelling place is lovely and beautiful. In many ways... Jesus is that dwelling place. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14 Now don't think that is a vocabulary link. I don't remember if I checked all, the, all that out. But I don't believe that's a vocabulary link, but it is a conceptual link. That God's dwelling place is His temple, His house. Jesus is going to be the temple where God and men meet. Okay? Somebody, I, I mentioned a second ago, Isaiah 60, 19 and 20. Talks you're, about. You're not moving off of this point, are you? Are you, are you moving off of this? Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, in John 14, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Yes. Um, in my father's house are many dwelling places. Dwelling places. And you think about it. And I don't know if I checked the word. Well, right, right, right. Yeah. But, 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 but now think about it. I mean, I, I, I always thought he's going to construct yeah. a mansion. Yeah. yeah. Well, no. He's going to where we will go. Yeah. Yeah. He is heaven. Yes, that's right. Well, that's what was it? Don's that says heaven is not the place we find God. 
God is the place we find heaven. That's good. That's good. Who said that? Dons. Okay. okay. See, yeah, it's Dons. Or I don't know. You see that quote? Sid Latham always quoted him. Okay. You don't want to see it to quote these liberal sources. But anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, John 14. I, I do need to check that. I wasn't saying that, that I know that it doesn't apply, John. I was saying yes. it from the standpoint that I just didn't check out all those references. But he references, and, and that is, that's something I should have looked up and did not look up. And so I apologize. I apologize for that. But somebody, I asked somebody to read Isaiah 60, 19 and 20. Who has that and wants to read that? Anybody? Isaiah 16, 19 and 20. Ella, go ahead. The sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Okay. So, the Lord is your everlasting light. Do you have a footnote beside that, Ella, or anything? Uh, referencing another passage. Anybody? I don't. But like six, that's the same thing you said about Jesus in Jesus is the Son as you in in basically in Revelation 21 verse 23. So the same kind of thing said of the Lord in Isaiah 60, verses 19 and 20, is said of Jesus, instead of the Lamb, actually, in Revelation 21 and verse 23. Now, I thought of this John, where, and this is John 14, where he says, trust in God, he says, he said, blessed is the one who trusts in Him. And Jesus said, trust in God, trust also in me. In John 14, verse 1. Trust in God, trust also in me. And so, blessed is the one who trusts in Him. Now, earlier I said I would let you, John, explain, verse 11, no good thing has He withheld, no good thing, has he withheld from those who walk uprightly? It's probably not what you're thinking of. Um, but Matthew 7, there at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, uh, Ask and it shall be given you, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, to him who knocks it shall be opened. Or what man is there among you? When his son shall ask him for a loaf, will give him a stone, or if he will ask for a fish, you will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father in heaven, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Okay, very good. He will withhold no good thing in Matthew 7, verse 11. But I'll tell you the passage... There was warning to make kind of the climax. Is Romans 8, 31 
and 32. Romans 8, 31 and 32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly, even when it costs something precious to him, even when it involved the death of his son. No good thing, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. For God delivered over his son for us all, how will he not with us freely give us all things? Psalm 84 as so many of these psalms, finds its greatest and richest and deepest fulfillment in Christ and in His cross. What thoughts do you have there? There. Um, I thought another parallel, um, kind of what Jesus, young Jesus said, do you not know that I have to be in my father's house? So. Okay, yes. That's a, that is a good point. You know, he has a yearning or law. That's different than the cleansing of the temple that Boyd mentioned earlier. But he has a he has a desire to be in God's house. And that is a good passage. Yeah, you want to take a picture of that, Christy? Yeah, I put that in verse 4. Um, I had blessed are those who dwell in your house. Yeah. You know, where else would I be? Right. You know, where else would a twelve year old be? And also you think about Anna and Simeon being there when they see uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and you're saying it from the standpoint of Anna and Simeon. Yeah, that's those are great stories, but you're applying it. Just the blessing of them well, Anna being there all the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. She and there she, she continues. she she continued in prayers day and night, prayers and fasting day and night, and did not leave the temple. And how blessed she was to be there when Jesus came. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. That's good. That's got to go. That's got to be a sermon sometime. <laughs> <laughs> but that's Luke two thirty six through thirty eight. I think Anna and Simeon are just wonderful characters. Yeah. And, and you know. You know that Luke was probably a Gentile. I mean, the one, he actually wrote more words of the New Testament than Paul wrote. And he's a Gentile. And, but he writes and he emphasizes a lot about Jewish believers. He says, Zacharias and Elizabeth were righteous and upright, obeying all the words of God. Luke wrote that, writes that. Luke writes that Jesus' parents are careful to circumcise him on the eighth day. And they carry out the sacrifices of the law. Why does Luke write that as a Gentile? Apparently the argument was being made to, to Gentiles, oh, you can't trust 
If, if this is true, if God is the God of the Jews, I mean, excuse me, if, if you Gentiles can't trust what the Christians are saying, because if God hasn't kept his promises to the Jewish people, how's he going to keep his promises to you? He hasn't kept his promises to us. Luke is careful to show that the best and the brightest of Judaism did follow Jesus. Zacharias and Elizabeth, parents of Jesus, Simeon and Anna, I didn't express that well. But there is a good idea behind that. Okay. So, um, continue to mull that over. If you want to ask me to explain it better, I'll try. So, okay. Thank you for being here. Lord willing, we will not meet next Sunday, next Tuesday night. Because uh, next Tuesday, I'm supposed to fly out very early Monday morning to Texas to preach um, for a week and be back in two weeks, Lord willing, from tonight on uh, Psalm 85. So, but Lord willing, uh, we will not meet on next Tuesday. But Phil, would you want to lead us in prayer as we close? God, our Father, how great you are. Father, thank you for this psalm that we've been able to study together to see um, those who long to be in your presence. Help us, Father, that we might also, with the whole, whole being, long to be with you, to be among people who uh, desire to be uh, servants of yours. Thank you, Father, for the encouragement we've gained. Um, Help us that we would be a blessing to those around us in our service and that we would be a blessing to you, to the world, that we might show your glory to them, that they might, uh, even as they stand at the threshold, might see uh, a taste of your, your glory. Uh, Father, help us to uh, have within us a desire, a longing, uh, a burning to... Uh, be more, more diligent in our work for you and help us to, to, uh, to do that. And it's through Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.